0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post. i Elise Hernandez from the Washington
1: Post. This is Cleveland with the Washington
0: Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao. It's Thursday, April first. Today, the emotional first days of testimony in the trial of
2: Derek Chauvin,
0: and. Biden's infrastructure
2: plan. My name is Holly Bailey. I'm a national correspondent for the Washington Post, currently based in Minneapolis, covering the George Floyd case and specifically the Derek Chauvin trial. I think everybody in the world knows who George Floyd is at this point because of the video that was circulated widely last summer um, and caused a national reckoning on race and policing and social justice and sent millions of people into the streets. George Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd. And it's it's this video that is sort of dominating the trial right now. The one where you see a black man on the ground, face down, handcuffed. Moaning, saying he can't breathe, crying out for his mother with three officers atop of him. And the one, specifically Derek Chauvin, who has his knee on the man's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds is now the count. And it, watching it, it obviously feels kind of like an eternity in some ways.
0: Holly, can you set the scene for what it's been like in Minneapolis as this trial has started?
2: It's been very intense as this trial has approached the city of Minneapolis, basically boarded up all of downtown Minneapolis. Buildings are boarded up because they're covered with plywood. There's huge security fencing. It looks a lot like a war zone. There's barbed wire. And this place, the courthouse where it's being held, the Hennepin County Government Center is usually this sort of bustling part of downtown Minneapolis and there's just no one there. When you're inside the courthouse, it is like a zombie movie. You don't see anyone, except for the people that are associated with the trial, which is about 30 people, and just a contingent of National Guard members and police officers who are kind of roaming through the building, making sure you don't sit down anywhere. (laughs) That's part of the security, and just keeping watch, embracing for something to happen. The worst to happen is what it feels like the city is bracing for.
0: Can you remind us who is Derek Chauvin and what is
2: he on trial for? Derek Chauvin is a 19 year veteran of the Minneapolis police before he was fired last year, a few days after Floyd's death and He's the first officer who's been charged in this case to be tried. The other three officers, two others who were restraining Floyd at his legs and his back, and another one who was sort of handling crowd control, they're going to be tried separately in a separate trial in August. But it's, you know, everybody is sort of focused on Derek Chauvin. He's the one facing the most severe charges. He's charged with second-degree murder, third-degree murder, second-degree manslaughter, He could face as many as, you know, between 40 and 50 years in prison, except he's a, because of his history and he doesn't have a criminal history, he could really serve around 10. But prosecutors are really pushing for him to serve way more than that. And they're doing various things in the case to make sure that that happens, including highlighting the number of young people who were at the scene, who watched him kneeling upon George Floyd, and that was that has led to some of the most intense testimony we've seen in this case.
0: And what are the narratives that we're starting to see emerge from both the
2: prosecution and the defense?
1: We have two objectives in this trial, ladies and gentlemen.
2: The narratives the first, really haven't changed for many months now. The prosecution is arguing that. Shot shot Derek Chauvin's knee was a substantial causal factor, and that's a very specific legal term that they're using to describe sort of just, you know, it's not necessarily that his knee was the sole thing that killed George Floyd, but it was a contributing factor in his death.
1: You learn that Minneapolis Police Department employees shall only use the amount of force that is objectively reasonable. You will learn that the use of excessive and a reasonable force against a citizen is an assault. In this case, we will show you that this was an assault that contributed to taking his life.
2: And on the flip side, the defense is arguing that George Floyd died of other reasons, that he had a high level of drugs in his system, that he had bad health, and that his struggle with the police officers basically blaming him sort of caused this.
1: Common sense tells us that we need to examine the totality of the circumstances to determine the meaning of evidence and how it can be applied to the questions of reasonableness of actions and reactions.
2: And so that's the sort of narrative that we knew about coming into this trial, and that's the one that sort of played out this week in the trial. And so far, what have we learned in the trial that we didn't know before? It's hard to say new things in this trial when everyone has seen this video. Though I should say not everyone. The jurors who are seated in this case, many of them said that they, they had not watched the full video. They'd only seen clips or they'd only seen pictures. And so for many of these people on the jury, there's 12 people and then two alternates. Many of them were seeing this footage for the first time. But I think some of the most powerful testimony is from people that we knew were coming, were witnesses and have sort of talked in the media before, but really got on the stand and talked about the trauma that they felt. Um, And one of the key witnesses so far has been Darnella Frazier, who was the 17-year-old girl who was walking to Cup Foods, the market where this all took place just to buy snacks Mm. on a late Monday evening and happens upon the scene of a black man on the ground and police officers restraining him. And she took out her phone and began filming. And, you know, her video really changed everything about this story. She's the reason that we're even talking about George Floyd, quite frankly, the Minneapolis police department issued a press release hours after George Floyd's death, saying a man had died of a medical emergency, but her video countered all of that. And so you know when she was on the stand she talked about the pressure and the trauma that she has felt afterwards the guilt it's been nights i stayed up apologizing
3: and, and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not
4: physically interacting and not saving his life, but it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done.
2: During the testimony, because she was a minor, her image was not shown on the live stream that's coming out and broadcasting this trial across the world. Um, And so you could only hear her voice Mm -hmm. and it was emotional. And that sometimes she was barely speaking in a whisper and you could just sort of hear all the weight that's been on her over the past year. When I look at George Floyd, I look at I look at my dad.
3: I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles because they are all black. I have black I have a black father. I have a black brother. I have
2: black friends. And I I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them.
0: That is so much for a seventeen-year-old to carry.
2: Yeah, and there's it's it's you know there was testimony from three other people who were below the age of eighteen, her cousin who had, I believe just turned ten, um, and two other teenagers. Tell us what
1: happened after you saw the ambulance come. He
0: asked the emblems had to push him off of him.
2: Again, and all these these young kids talking about this scene of horror and how they were yelling at the officers, these teenage girls trying to intervene. It was difficult because I felt like there wasn't really anything I could do
3: as a bystander. The highest power was there, and I felt like I was feeling it. I'm sorry, you said you felt like you were feeling it?
2: Well, like failing to do anything. Oh,
3: you said fail, failing, I know.
2: This is something that's going to has changed their lives forever. And you think about how that's going to affect them.
3: Did you um, go back to Cup Foods after after that? I still haven't been there to this day. And why is that? I don't want to be reminded.
0: And Holly, what are some other moments from the last couple days in court that are striking to you?
2: Well, the prosecution opened its case by bringing in people who were eyewitnesses at 30th in Chicago who watched this. The first witness was a 911 operator, um, a dispatcher, who sent the officers to the scene after they had gotten a call from a market about a counterfeit bill.
1: Thank you, Ms. Curry. Can you tell the jurors what your occupation is?
2: I am a Minneapolis 911 dispatcher.
1: And uh, so, who is your employer?
2: City of Minneapolis. And how long have you been doing that? Almost seven years. And one of the things that was striking about her testimony is that, you know, she talked about looking over on her computer and seeing the officers pull a man out of a squad car and lay on top of him, as she described it. And at one point, she thought her screen had frozen because they had been on top of this man for so long. And what did you decide to do? I took that instinct and I called the sergeant. And she sort of described feeling in her gut that something was wrong. And she did something that she sort of shouldn't have done, she admitted. She got on the phone and she called the officer's sergeant, their supervisor, and said, Look, something's going on. What's wrong? And she described herself, You know, forgive me for being a snitch. May 25,
4: 2020.
2: Hey, this is Jenna with Channel
0: One. Hey, what's up? Hey, so um, just wanted to let you know about the person with a knife
3: at 2602 Bloomington. And then, I don't know, you can call me a snitch if you want to, but we have the cameras up for 320's call.
2: So that was sort of how the prosecution opened their case. And they just went eyewitness to eyewitness. People that, if you've watched the video of Floyd's death, that you recognize. One of the people that they called was a man named Donald Williams, who was increasingly upset and yelling at the officers um, and it turns out that one of the reasons that he was so upset was because he's a mixed martial artist and a former wrestler, a college wrestler and he recognized one of the moves that he said Chauvin was doing on George Floyd, he called it a blood choke. Uh,
4: one was that the neck was diagonal across the throat which on a, a blood choke you would tack the side of the neck, you know, in which you're in a Kimura or, um, or side chokes or things like that, you want to attack the side of the neck to cut the circulation. And then to get the choke tighter, you hit different shimmies, which I felt the officer on top was shimmying to actually get the final choke in while he was on top. To
2: get the- and one of the things that he testified was that once he called out, you're doing a blood choke, that that's when Derek Chauvin looked up and kind of looked up at the crowd, and that's part of the video you see. And he described sort of seeing the officer shimmy his foot to put more weight on the man's neck and just becoming police. more and more upset. Uh,
4: I believe I witnessed a murder.
1: And so you felt the need to
4: call the police. Yeah, I felt the need to call the police on the police.
2: At no, one point there. during sort of combative police. back and forth with the Chauvin's defense about. attorney, Eric Nelson, Eric Nelson kept trying to say you were angry and he pointed to the quiet. fact that he began calling the officers' names.
4: Yes, yeah, you heard that. Yeah, you heard right. the video.
1: You call him a tough guy. Right?
4: You, you watch the video.
1: You call him a real man. Right?
4: You watch the video. Okay. You do have to answer the question, yes or
1: no, based on what he's asking. I'm going to ask you that again, so your answers should be yes or no, okay? Yes. You called him a tough guy. I did. You called him a real man. I did. You called him such a man. I did. You called him bogus.
4: Hmm. I did.
1: You called him a bum at least 13 times.
4: That's what you counted in the video? That's what I counted. And that's what you got, 13. Right.
1: So again, sir, it's fair to say that you grew angrier and angrier.
4: No, I grew professional and professional. And I stayed in my body. You can't pay me out to be angry.
2: And that is part of the defense strategy here, is to argue that Chauvin and the other officers felt that they were under threat by a hostile crowd
1: there's there's more to the scene than just the office what the officers see in front of them there are people behind them there are people across the street there are cars stopping people yelling there are a, there is a growing crowd and what officers perceive to be
2: a threat and prosecutors have in some ways called so many people to the stand this week teenage girls and elderly gentlemen (laughs) to show that, you know, this is not an angry mob. These were people that were just visibly and upset and trying to get these officers to step off this man who was struggling. Another key witness was Genevieve Hansen. You see her in the video. She's an off-duty firefighter who happened to be walking by. She came across the scene and she saw George Floyd not moving. And she saw what appeared to be fluid coming from his body that made her concerned.
3: Um, I identified myself right away because I, I noticed that he needed medical attention. Um, I, it didn't take me long to realize that he was had an altered level of consciousness and in our training that is when the first time that somebody needs medical attention.
2: And so, so she tried to intervene and officers yeah, pushed her back and, and wouldn't me. let her take George Floyd's pulse and I would have checked his I would have checked his airway
3: I would have been worried about his a spinal cord injury because he had so much weight on his neck I would have opened his airway to check if there were any obstructions
1: and were you able to do that any of those steps no why weren't you able to do any of that
3: because the officers didn't let me in to the scene I also offered
2: and at one point, Eric Nelson again was trying to talk about the anger that people at the scene were showing um, as part of their strategy again to paint this hostile crowd. And she became quite testy and said, You know, you've obviously never witnessed somebody killing a man. Um, and at that moment, the judge dismissed the jury and he sort of spoke to her very sternly and said,
3: We're outside
1: the hearing of the jury, Ms. Hanson. I'm advising you. Do not argue with counsel, and specifically, do not argue with the court.
2: Every person who has testified, it's not just that they're giving their eyewitness testimony. It's that they're talking about how this incident has stayed with them and has affected them and that they struggle with it. I mean, one of the things that was notable about Genevieve Hansen's testimony is that they didn't play her video that she shot. She was one of the people that shot video. They didn't play her video during her testimony in part because she is so anguished at watching it. And they wanted her to sort of be, you know, able and calm on the stand because it's just, as she sort of testified, you know, she feels anguished that she wasn't able to do anything for George Floyd. She wasn't able to save his life.
1: And when you couldn't do that, how did that make you feel? Totally
3: distressed.
1: Were you frustrated? Yes. Ms. Hanson, you know, I, as I told you, we can take our time. So feel free to just take a minute. And, you need a drink of water. Go ahead.
0: It's interesting because when we talk about George Floyd's video, you know, we always think of the same video, but you're seeing a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different ways that that one incident is recorded from different angles and how that um, has
2: this rippling out effect. Everybody picked up a phone. Everybody grabbed their phone. And I, I think that's become something instinctual um, for people in this environment where there is such discussion about the police. And one thing that's that's been striking and that happened Wednesday, very late in the day, was that the jury was shown body camera videos from the police officers at the scene. You know, we had learned early on that Derek Chauvin's body camera fell off when he, in the struggle. When he sort of arrived mm-hmm. at the scene, he was struggling with George Floyd at the car and it fell off under the car. And so it only captured audio of the incident. But one of the things that we learned Wednesday was that as he was putting it back on, it captured this conversation that he had with one of the witnesses there, Charles McMillan, an elderly man who had, had seen this happening, had pulled over. And so he got out of the car and was trying to talk to Floyd.
1: And I'm trying to get him to understand that when you make a mistake, once they get you a cup, it's no certain thing. as a big class, but you're going to go with them. And I was trying to get him to go.
3: Okay. And you were saying, is it your voice saying um, things like you can't win? Yes, ma'am. And and why were you saying that?
1: Because I have had interaction with officers myself. And I understand once you
2: get in the cup, you can't win. You're done. Okay. It's just the way I have looked at it. So were you and so be, um, you hear him on the video okay. telling Floyd, just get in the car, just get in the car. And that's what he was trying to do. And so he sort of broke down on the stand and cried. <laughs>
1: Oh my! Oh, just take your the time. Let's know when you're ready. Well, just give
2: you a moment, Mr.
3: McGon. I'm not
2: sure if there's water as well. Just and you saw how traumatized he was watching this video again. Um, but one of the things that we learned was that when Chauvin put his body camera video back on his chest, another officer had found it underneath the car and he was putting it back on. Um, Charles McMillan, who had actually met Derek Chauvin while he was on patrol a few days before this incident, approached him and had a conversation with him. And he basically told the officer that he couldn't respect what he did.
0: Can you
1: advise the fire department the, if
0: they're still with you, they need to go to 36th Park to well, assist with the people on full
1: rest? That's one person's opinion. But it's like, <laughs> no, 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 i gotta I, got I got to get in the car. We've got to control this guy because he's a sizable guy.
4: Yeah, and I've got to
1: get in, we we in the car. looks kind of like he's probably
2: on something. And then you hear on the video Chauvin saying, well, that's one man's opinion and sort of defending what happened and saying, you know, Floyd was a sizable man. I think he was on something, he needed to be under control. And this is really notable because Derek Chauvin has not spoken out publicly about this case. We learned in court last month that he did not give a formal statement to his sergeant or anything. Um, He pretty much stopped talking instantly. And so it was sort of just striking to even hear what he sounds like when he speaks.
0: Holly Bailey is a national correspondent for The Post. This story was produced by Rennie Svernovsky.
4: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses,
0: It's infrastructure week.
3: It is infrastructure week, big infrastructure week.
0: (laughs) And lots of things are included in infrastructure week. That's Rachel Siegel, an economics reporter for The Post. And she's been reporting on the infrastructure package President Biden unveiled in Pittsburgh Wednesday night.
1: It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once in a generation investment in America. Unlike anything we've seen or done since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago.
3: This week, the Biden White House unveiled a roughly $2 trillion jobs and infrastructure plan. It will create
1: millions of jobs, good-paying jobs. It will grow the economy, make us more competitive around the world, promote our national security interest, and put us in a position to win the global competition with China in the upcoming years. It's big yes. It's bold yes, and we can get it done.
3: It's a really sprawling package that covers infrastructure from roads to bridges to workforce development and manufacturing. And this is really seen from the White House as the next push beyond the COVID package that was passed just a couple of weeks ago that lays a much longer framework for Biden's economic legacy.
0: And what can you tell me about the timing of this? Why is this coming now?
3: So there was a pretty quick push after the White House and Democrats in Congress were able to pass the COVID stimulus package a couple of weeks ago to move next. You know, there are still big parts of that last COVID package that are still getting out the door that we have a lot of questions about. But the White House is definitely turning to this next push that involves a major overhaul of the country's infrastructure. And and what's in the plan? So the plan is organized into four broad buckets. There is a transportation infrastructure category that covers about $621 billion of the funding. There is a research, development, manufacturing bucket that's about $580 billion. There is a category called infrastructure at home, which includes clean drinking water, high-speed internet, electrical infrastructure, affordable housing... That's $650 billion. And then there's this fourth category that's been known as the caretaking economy that covers home and community-based care for elderly people and people with disabilities. And that comes to about $400 billion. Wow. There's a lot in there. And there are a lot of things that you know are sort of under this broad umbrella of infrastructure, but that mean a lot of different things.
0: And tell me about what some of the reactions have been like so far. A lot of the reaction has to do
3: with how large the bill is. There's been a lot of response saying, well, this is just too big. And there are a lot of things in this bill that don't really translate to what we typically think of as infrastructure. So to start with what Republicans are saying, there's criticism about the size of the package, for example. There's also criticism for how the White House is proposing it pays for it. So this package comes with a series of tax increases that Republicans have come out pretty strongly against and that major business groups like the Chamber of Commerce have come out against.
0: Well, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, what are the tax changes that would pay for this bill? So the tax changes are probably going to be
3: some of the most contentious parts of this bill. This proposal raises the corporate tax rate from 21 percent to 28 percent. It increases the global minimum tax paid from 13 percent to 21 percent. And then there are a whole other list of measures like ending federal tax breaks for fossil fuel companies, ramping up tax enforcement against corporations.
0: But Biden's plan to raise taxes, is that going to be enough to actually pay for this ambitious package? There is some kind of fuzzy math here
3: that I think a lot of economists are trying to parse out. So the 2.3 trillion dollars in spending roughly would take place over 8 years but it would take 15 years for these proposed corporate tax hikes to generate that much revenue. So basically you have you know a mismatch in that timeline. The White House's answer is that the big spending push itself is not permanent but that the revenue that it will generate is permanent. But it's a little unclear exactly What that means, and I think that's one of the questions that we're trying to pin down, too, because a lot of the Republican opposition is that this is excessive spending and that the country shouldn't be paying for it. As of yesterday, when President Biden unveiled this plan, there really did not seem to be very much bipartisan support at all. Mitch McConnell said no. A lot of Republicans have dubbed some of the categories in Biden's proposal as, you know, a progressive or liberal wish list.
0: And Rachel, how will this ultimately fit into the American economy as we try to basically come back from a pandemic? It's definitely a question that the econ reporters at The Washington Post
3: are trying to figure out ourselves. You know, there are still 9.5 million jobs that have not returned since the pandemic began. And there are going to be a lot of jobs that don't return. And I think part of this push from the White House is ways of creating new jobs. So this big jobs and infrastructure package would put, for example, hundreds of thousands of electricians and workers into jobs laying miles of the electric grid and capping hundreds of oil wells and funding research for climate technology. So I think that this is part of the White House's vision for what a greener economy can look like, especially as we emerge from the pandemic. At the same time, though, there are questions about whether the last COVID package is going to heat up the economy in a way that is sort of too much for the economy to handle, that there's going to be all of this customer demand as people book vacations and spend big, that people suddenly are going to be brought back to work. And, and the reason that I connect those two things is because I think that there are a lot of unanswered questions about what the economy is going to look like as the pandemic winds down and even beyond then.
0: Rachel Siegel is an economics reporter for The Post. The story was produced by me, Alexis Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by senior producer Rena Flores. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag #postreports. Martin Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.